As a performer, your body is there. Hi, I'm Mad Kate, and you're listening to Sweat, Sexuality, Work, Extraction, Art, Theatrics. Sweat is a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body at work, where work is broadly defined as the labor of survival, the labor of care, creativity, and capital A art. How exactly do we define our work? And how does that work entangle and circumscribe our sexual identities, our creative lives, and the ways in which we provide care? How do we perform tasks, acts of care, and identities? Anchored in our always already racialized and sexualized bodies, our complex intersectionalities, these conversations are a means of relating through work to each other. I hope they contribute to dialogues which normalize sex work as work, and all work as deserving of respect, healthy conditions, and a living wage. Happy New Year and welcome back to a new season of Sweat, where I will continue to explore the topic of labor. This year, diving more deeply into questions around how we organize, vision, and dream new strategies for work, care, and survival. I'm kicking off this season with a conversation with two artists and activists, Yara Nassar and Joshua Schwebel, who have been involved in organizing artists in Berlin against the silencing and canceling of pro-Palestinian voices. I hope artists can do what you do best. I do words. That's what I'm good at. Revolutions need words. And, and revolution needs each and every one of us. There is no one way. Yara Nassar is a German-Lebanese, U.S.-American writer, performer, and anthropologist interested in boundaries and blurring them. She writes poetry, plays, and prose in German and English, interwoven with Levantine Arabic. My identity is being instrumentalized whether I want it to or not. As a Jewish person, as a queer person, as a non-German person, implicating me in ways that I do not agree with. I need to be very, very strategic, very careful, and very precise in speaking from my own subjectivity that that does not perpetuate the fetishization of the afraid Jew, that does not perpetuate using Jewish identity to affect racism. Joshua Schwebel is a Canadian conceptual artist based in Montreal and Berlin. Working in conceptual art and institutional critique, Joshua Schwebel's artistic practice responds to sites and situations looking at the neoliberal infrastructures that precondition the exhibition and valorization of art. Up until very recently, my work has been engaging with questions of art and labor, questions of how art reiterates or mimics capitalism in its structures and in its hierarchy. Um, I think so much of like the critique of art orients around questions of value, which really prioritizes the art market. And so, so much of my work has to deal with the unseen labor that goes into the production and how that kind of structure of privileging an object internalizes and conceals labor. And therefore, like in that very structure is a hierarchy that's very similar to capitalism. So a lot of my work tries to like make that pre-structure visible, make that unseen and unpaid labor valorized through interventions, through redistribution of money. And I've always been left-wing, queer, feminist, anti-racist, all of those things. But I'm also very, very strongly opposed to instrumentalizing my identity and putting that into a visible form in my art. So I always use my politics as a way of orienting my practice, but not necessarily as a way of presenting myself to produce my own identity. I try to stay behind the scenes or like hidden in my work. I think that 
with the issues that have just taken place, um, the changes in Germans' level of censorship since October 7th, my political positions have become incompatible with the structures that are going on in the German art world. And so I've had to sort of come forward, like bring my politics into practice in a totally different way than I have in the past. And I'm learning so much and so quickly. I don't know if I have a practice right now. It's really, really impossible for me to even consider making art or making myself an artist right now. Mm -hmm. I think that my practice has shifted into not necessarily doing art, but just doing. And in that, I've brought my identity in because I can't leave it out. And I don't think it's useful to leave it out in this context. So while I think that my identity and my art practice are rather not necessarily incompatible, but there's a friction there that I haven't figured out how to resolve in terms of just like moving and acting right now. My identity is useful. It's being instrumentalized whether I want it to or not. As a Jewish person, as a queer person, as a non-German person, like all of those things are coming into play and affecting my status here and implicating me in ways that I do not agree with. And so I need to be very, very strategic, very careful and very precise in speaking from my own subjectivity that does not sort of perpetuate the fetishization of the afraid Jew that does not perpetuate using Jewish identity to affect racism or to block out the voices of people who are being silenced. So yeah, like now it's just, I don't know if that has anything to do with my art practice other than that those experiences are feeding into the experiences I had as an artist are feeding into the skills that I have and my analysis of art, but I, I, I feel very disconnected from the side of myself that feels able to act as an artist or occupy spaces for art because I feel so repulsed by the way that those spaces are shirking their responsibility right now. And how about you, Yara? How is your practice and have you been inspired to make work? I come from theater. I write, I perform, I act, I do drag, I do, I do different things. And art has always been like a very political thing for me. And I mostly deal in my work with both grief and celebration of resistance. So as an artist that is second generation sort of diaspora, there really was a lack of voices like mine when I was growing up. I just didn't have any exposure to any art that sort of spoke to my experience, let's say. And my art is is mostly for, you know, my community and scare quotes, whatever community that may be, um, which I usually define as whoever shows up to the room with the honest wish to engage um, and the honest wish to listen and exchange and also hear that is my community. Yeah, also in the last, today it's three months, I have actually been producing quite a lot of art just because it kind of comes out of me because I lie down at night and I can't stop, uh, can't fall asleep because there's just words racing through my mind. So I have to, you know, have my little paper and pencil ready. And yeah, I've been writing a lot really against this, the silencing that we're experiencing. You've been writing a lot of poetry or how, what kind of format has it been taking? It has been a lot of poetry, yes, but also just... I've done a lot of media critique, actually. So just sort of taking 
the way certain news articles frame things and then picking that apart. Um, and I've also just written about, so I had I had the immense pleasure and privilege to travel to Palestine this summer in the occupied West Bank. And I've just been writing down sort of the stories I've seen and I experienced there. So I'll For instance, this video of the horse of Jenin being crushed. So Jenin is a city in the north of the occupied West Bank, and it is home to one of the major refugee camps uh, in, in the West Bank, the Jenin refugee camp. And they had had this massive horse that was built from metal scraps. It was mostly cars uh, that were destroyed during the... 2002 invasion and siege on Jenin refugee camp by the Israeli army. And yeah, afterwards they, they took these scrap metals and they built this this large horse. And a centerpiece of the horse was uh, a piece from an ambulance. So there was an ambulance that was destroyed. And I saw this video of this horse, horse being torn down by a bulldozer. And then they they dragged it through the streets and like dragged it all the way back into um, the state of Israel. I don't exactly know where they took it to, but it was really emblematic for me to see this destruction of art and this destruction of a symbol of resistance to take the things that were broken down and then to make something new of it. And then, you know, now 21 years later, it gets torn down again. So I've just been writing these stories like, I, I, I keep on coming back to this for Germany especially, and I think that also goes for many other Western countries. Palestine isn't a place. It's a vaguely threatening idea. People don't realize that it's it's just a place and you can go there and people just live there. And there's just kids there that just grew up there and they want to go to school and then play video games with their friends these they're 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 just normal humans and that is what is being taken away from them through this thorough thorough dehumanization that we have seen unfortunately of course not just since the 7th of October but also for decades before that just the incredible dehumanization of Palestinians that is really the only basis um, that anyone can can um, it's the only way to justify the absolute atrocities and I don't mean justify as in they are correct but that is the way they are being justified is really just the intense dehumanization of especially Palestinians and an extent to that also other Arabs and I have that a lot in 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 Germany that uh, I confuse white Germans because I'm very light-skinned they don't necessarily get read as Arab by everyone immediately. And and that confuses people. So do you want to talk a little about your experience with arts funding, maybe with Canadian arts funding, the difference between how Canadian and German arts funding is operating, our work vis-a-vis -vis German arts funding and what's been changing? A lot of my work has to do with questions around uh, who gets to be an artist. And that breaks down for me to class, um, to access to funding. And I mentioned that I come from Canada not because I'm a great lover of that colonial project, but because in Canada there exists a very good public funding system for artists. 
And the longer I spend in Germany around the funding system that exists here, or that existed here until a few days ago, uh, the more I just see like how many problems there are with the ways that funding is adjudicated, distributed, and structured here. A lot of my work in this case like, has to do with the Canadian funding system because it's very robust, because it is very much more integrated in an idea of public funding where the juries are composed of other artists and the funding is is much more carefully considered and much more easily available. And there is a possibility of, I mean, my entire practice exists because I have been able to access that funding. And that makes a huge difference and I think is not a possibility for a lot of German-born people or people who live here who don't have other means of supporting themselves. So like a lot of my more recent projects have had to do with either analyzing the blind spots in the Canadian funding system or also looking at the ways that the public funding system of Canada is susceptible to colluding with capitalism, capitalism writ large. So the, the, the project that I'm pursuing right now and hoping funding, pending funding, from Canada or from Germany? From Canada. There's no possibility for me to get funding in Germany under the current regulations. Can I ask, have you ever received German funding? I received some, like, COVID funds, but yeah. no, I've never received any kind of funding from the Senate. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Canada has, I think, 70% of the world's mining companies are listed on the stock exchange in Toronto. And Canada's main source of income, I guess is through mining. Canadian mining companies are some of the worst in the world. They are a complete extension of Canada as a colonial project in that they go to other lands. They extract minerals, uh, oil from those countries. They leave environmental destruction in their wake. They are, in terms of labor politics, horribly toxic. In terms of environmental politics, horribly toxic, but also just it's a bunch of white people showing up and the way that they relate to the land is incongruous and incompatible with a a kind of indigenous relationship to the land of being part of the body. When you say land as part of the body, can you tell me more what you mean? I mean, I'm not indigenous, so I don't want to speak from that position. But from the research I've done, I think that there's a lot of indigenous communities that believe that they are one with the land. They are the land, that the land is an extension of their body. And so this idea that miners show up and turn the land upside down pull something out of it and leave behind a mess. And like that's not even talking about the ways that they treat the local population. It's just like it's an extremely violent practice. And it's just like entirely financial in its goals. And um, so my research turned up that the former chair of the Canada Council for the Arts, which is the major federal funding body of Canada, from, from 2000, I think 2015 until 2020, was one of the richest gold miners in Canada. Or he was a financier of gold mining. Um, and he's got a huge art collection. He's sort of like sponsored or given philanthropy to a lot of art museums. And in giving money, changes the name of the institution to his name and puts a whole bunch of strings attached to the money that he awards. So there's a whole bunch of ways that art, even though it's publicly funded, is imbricated within these structures of extraction and colonialism that are completely antithetical to a lot of the politics of the artists that are supported. Um, so this practice, this project that I'm doing, which is like a, a kind of a long-term project, is looking at these intersections between art and mining, art and resource extraction, 
I think that there was a time when art was less embedded in these structures. And as art has become more institutionalized, more industrialized, more corporatized, more acceptable in the kinds of popular culture forms through neoliberalism, like we are more and more dependent on these structures. And all of a sudden, as the political landscape has shifted so drastically, and I think a lot of these sort of like Zionist, anti-Zionist, Zionist versus pro-Palestinian voices, Zionist versus marginalized voices, like however you want to cut the cake, it's splitting along money. And we know that there are oil interests in Gaza. We know that like a lot of this just comes down to big, big, big money underneath it all. And seeing the ways that these censorships are playing out almost entirely against people of color and the people pulling the strings are the people who are very, very wealthy. And those strings are being pulled because of conditions of finance and capitalism. Like, that's where I think that these curtains get drawn back. And I think that, like, realizing how embedded art is within capitalism art, and we're in a very, very precarious place. And that's why the institutions are silent here. I think that a lot of people feel very, very afraid and very split because if they're at all embedded in an institution, they feel like they have the weight of perpetuating the institution and whether or not it's worth it for them to lose their jobs, for the institution to go under in order to speak the the truth of their values. And that's a tough choice, but I'm sorry, you've already made the wrong one if you're still silent. And this is really key to the issue today, isn't it? This is... um... A lot of artists who receive funding or also don't receive funding from the German government are understanding how that money is tied to the state, is tied to uh, weapons production. And and somehow in this particular issue around Palestine, the state is unwilling to fund artists and our institutions that critique Israel and also the way that Germany supports Israel. So in a way, uh, I guess it's a bit of a double-edged sword in the sense that while we are seeing a slew of cancellations, uh, there is perhaps more of a magnifying glass on this. Maybe I just want to ask you, Yara, if you want to just lay out what is going on. (laughs) And we know that it didn't start on October 7th, the neither the occupation nor the censorship. None of this is new. We have seen censorship of Palestinian, Arab and voices that stand in solidarity with them for years that mostly in in Germany and I know also in the US, which is sort of the two specific contexts uh, I can speak to, that that has been mostly leveraged over a accusation of anti-Semitism. And that is a very effective accusation. So in Germany, we call that a Totschlag-Argument. TKO, total knockout. Yeah, there's nothing you can say against that. And so for a very long time already, people have gotten accused of anti-Semitism if they speak about Palestine. This has gotten stronger. Also, this this narrative that criticism of Israel is, is anti-Semitic, which it's not, has been pushed by Israel stronger since the BDS movement has gotten more traction. And 2019, for instance, the, the German parliament passed a BDS resolution that basically declares BDS, so Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, to be anti-Semitic. It's a non-legally binding resolution because they couldn't make it legally binding because then somebody could go to court over it and 
it is not constitutional. There have been similar cases in the Netherlands and Belgium, I believe, that have been won that tried to pass sort of anti-BDS laws and lawyers were like, nah, <laughs> not it's it's not anti-Semitic. And so forbidding these these boycotts is, yeah, unconstitutional. And ever since then, it's basically you can go through seven degrees of association uh, is enough to get you canceled. So I'll give you one example, which is the one of South African philosopher Chile Mbembe, who was invited to speak at the Ruhr Triennale in 2020. And he was invited to speak on a completely different topic. But after he was invited, accusations started popping up that he was anti-Semitic because in two of his books, he had sort of in passing compared Israel's politics to to apartheid South Africa's politics. And this accusation was was leveraged toward him. And oh, it was also he'd also signed a petition for his university in South Africa to sort of cut ties with a university in Israel that had very intense ties to the Israeli military. And that that gained him in Germany the accusation of being anti-Semitic. Where, as Josh was already saying, we're seeing this again being leveraged against against a non-white body. We're seeing this accusation in this case leveled against a black South African. But not only was he canceled and, you know, pressured to the the head of the festival's pressure to disinvite him, but also she was then accused of anti-Semitism by association. Uh, for the fact that she even invited him, even though he was supposed to speak on a completely different topic. And she ended up losing her job. There's a very good article in Der Freitag on it where she talks about how unfounded these accusations were, but she wasn't given the opportunity to actually engage in this conversation. And that is exactly what we're seeing. It's a shutting down of the conversation. And now what we're having is just a slew of cancellations. There have been dozens of cancellations from the really big prominent case of Oyun, which is a cultural center here in Berlin that got its entire funding revoked over offering a space to um, Jewish Voice for Peace to have a mourning ceremony, which is, of course, especially silly that German, uh, non-Jewish German politicians are accusing a cultural space of hidden anti-Semitism, because that's what they call it, hidden anti-Semitism for hosting a Jewish group. I think that a lot of the fundamental issue that a lot of this comes down to, like you were saying, it's like a Totschlag argument. And I was like, not for, it shouldn't be for Jews, right? Like if anyone can win that argument, it should be a Jew saying, I am a living Jew, I disagree with this. And I have not necessarily one argument, but I've had Germans constantly say to me, well, we can't say that. We, ca we can't critique Israel. We can't say that. We can't win that argument. And I, I keep getting so frustrated about the inability for people who are otherwise able to critique nationalism, able to critique colonialism, able to critique imperialism, say like, well, Israel gets a free pass. We can't critique Israel because it's inherently anti-Semitic to critique the Jewish state. And I'm like, it is not the Jewish state. It is the Zionist state. And boycotting Israeli businesses is not boycotting Jewish businesses. There's a difference. And as long as you can distinguish between Jews and 
the ethno-national state that is created by a Zionist entity that in itself is an uptake of a colonialist project. I see no problem with it. BDS is simply using capitalism against itself, right? It's just saying like, we do not want to fund these businesses because these businesses are supporting a military occupation that is, it is horrible. It is bad. I am against that. And if I can use my power as a consumer to withdraw any kind of financial support to these businesses, why the fuck not? Well, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot. I think that, you know, the idea of having a double standard for Israel is part of the issue. And I think, unfortunately, the the standard is so low for a nation state. A nation state should basically be able to, and not that I'm on this side, militarize its borders, decide who comes in and who comes out, who's illegal and who's not illegal, and have amass a huge military and kill other people outside of their nation without accountability. And but the Palestinians are not outside of their nation. The Palestinians are not their own nation. The Palestinians are a captive group of indigenous people who lived on the land who have been disenfranchised by generations of military incursion, rape, murder. Uh, like, it is, they are not their own people. It is not an equal fight. And no matter how many times I have this conversation with the Germans in my life, I'm like, these, this is not Israel's right to defend itself. This is Israel exterminating an indigenous population. I think it's also a fetishization of Jewishness from Germans because mostly growing up in Germany, I I grew up in sort of a mid-sized town. I had a single Jewish friend. And in my town, for instance, uh, I ha and I had to look this up, there was a synagogue and it was burned by the Nazis and it was never rebuilt. And there is so little Jewish life in Germany that Germans also just don't actually engage with Jewish people as people because they know so few of them because it was eradicated. And then, you know, the people that were left were very much encouraged to go to Palestine And not only from Germany, but also from France and England and, and all these other countries. And, um, you know, the Zionist leaders, I th think it was Ben-Gurion who said, um, it's like, if I could save a hundred Jewish kids from Germany and send them to Britain, and I know all a hundred of them would be saved, or if I could take a hundred of them and send them to Palestine, and I know 50 of them will die, I will send them to Palestine because we need this immigration. Like, it's not, it's not actually something that was made to protect Jewish people, which is this narrative that we get taught also that, like, it was a reparation for the Holocaust. Okay, why was the Balfour Declaration made in 1917? Why was the world, the first World Zionist Congress in 1897? Do people seriously believe that the U.S. and the United Nations um, just gave it to the Jews because they were actually sorry If you believe that, where is, you know, the nation state of the Sinti and Roma? Where is the the nation state of all the other people that were genocided? Um, it wasn't it wasn't to be nice to the Jews. It really just wasn't. I mean, to just load on to that, Balfour himself was a noted anti-Semite. The reason he created that declaration was because he did not want Jews in England not because he wanted a safe place for the Jews. What frequently comes up for me in conversations with Germans is where should the Jews go? Where can the Jews be safe? And I'm like, where they are. Why do the Jews have to go anywhere? 
Why do the Jews need a special nation state? Why does any ethnicity need a nation state? That is a fascist idea in its principle. On top of that, most of the world's Jews live in the diaspora. And the reason that anti-Semitism existed was because it's an anti-diaspora concept. Like, it's an idea that the Jews corrupt the purity of the European states. And so one of the major financial backers of Zionism are evangelical Christians from the U.S., giving almost, like, the, the majority of the money that goes into the Zionist project comes from them because they believe in the rapture. They believe that if all the Jews are in Israel, the rapture will come. And so that's why they are financing this. This is not for the good of, of Jewish life. It's definitely not for the good of Palestinian life. And we haven't even talked about the ways that anti-Semitism is exported onto Arabs as this like non-German problem, as though the Germans have denazified and that anti-Semitism doesn't continue to exist here and continue to be ignored, the white right-wing German anti-Semitism that is real, not that does definitely frighten and threaten the living Jews that exist here, for sure. But that's not what is being combated by these these ridiculous censorship and criminalization of pro-Palestinian movements right now. If Germany wants to actually do something against anti-Semitism, it needs to be looking at its right wing. It does not need to be looking at its, its, its Auslanders. This is just an expression of racism, and it's absolutely vile. I think that fascism breeds fascism. I think that the violence that we are seeing perpetuated against Palestinians does breed a certain militarization as a form of self-defense and as a form of dignity, because how many times can you passively resist? But I think that imagining that if Israel did not exist, the Jews could not live there anymore is false. Jews have lived side by side with Palestinians long before the Zionist project began. Um, I think that certainly the ways that Palestinians have been uh, dehumanized and the ways that Zionists have been indoctrinated to dehumanize Palestinians is, a, is not something that can simply go away. I don't have an answer to that, but I think that to think that just because the state of Israel, that the state of Israel is the only entity or the only form of cohabitation that can exist in that territory. And yeah, it's absurd, you know, if we say like, Free Palestine, just an insanely racist assumption and really sort of very telling for the people that say that, that they cannot imagine a cohabitation. And of course, it's difficult because how the fuck do you cohabitate with a society that that killed your parents? We have 25,000 and these are the minimum numbers because we don't actually know who have become orphans. Like, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be kind of hard, but it doesn't that doesn't mean it's impossible. And I also want to say that's sort of the the Gordian knot you have to untangle is this idea of like okay, why is it not anti-Semitic to critic uh critique Israel necessarily? But let's be very aware that this conversation tends to fall back into a line that centers and humanizes one group while not addressing the other. And we must always resist that. Yeah, you asked, how can you live in a country and cohabit in a country with people who killed your grandparents? And I'm like, I live here, you know, <laughs> like, it's hard. 
you know, and I was going to add also many times over like this cultural appropriation that happens in Germany. I went to a panel uh, after Documenta where people, Germans, were talking about their experience of the Documenta. And two Germans on the panel claimed to be traumatized by the anti-Semitism of the Documenta. And my eyes just sort of like blew out of my face because I was just like, how dare you claim to be traumatized by your perception of anti-Semitism? You, (sighs) I'm trying to think of the ways that trauma creates this kind of lightning rod or this bond, this affective sort of like capacity for people to fetishize and to exclude and to be unable to think. And the fact that a, that two white Germans could claim to be traumatized by anti-Semitism just like mm. verknüpft that for me in this way that I was just like, absolutely no fucking way do you get to claim to be traumatized by anti-Semitism. Like, but that is what is happening right now. We are seeing the entire German culture being traumatized by a perceived act of violence against Jews that is being blown completely out of proportion and that also externalizes who is the agent of the violence. And it's it's just so impossible to have a rational conversation with people right now because the number of racist assumptions that are built into their position, like the ways that the Jewish victim is untouchable as a paradigm. There is no way to talk about these things without Germans saying, you can't say that, that's anti-Semitic. And I'm just like, you do not tell me what is and is not anti-Semitism. Like, it is so offensive and there's so much that needs to be unlearned about cultural appropriation, that needs to be unlearned about racism, that needs to be unlearned about Islamophobia, like all of that. I'm just like, that this, that these events have sort of brought to the surface that I'm just like, how? How, how, how have people in this culture been staging events that claim to be decolonial? How much learning is needed right now is unbelievable. Yeah. I am shocked. And that word Islamophobia, which I feel like I'm not hearing enough about. Why are we not talking about Mohammed Barakat, the Jordanian student in Hamburg who was killed and then the police now claim it was a suicide and his family is told to like not talk to the press about it and it's just not... I'm, 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 I'm reduced to making faces at the microphone. And, and yet we're seeing like escalating continuous repetitions of the violence that happened on October 7th. We, we rarely, if ever, see Palestinian people on the news in Germany speaking from a Palestinian position, speaking from an Arab position. We see so much spotlights giving to Jews as victims, as afraid. And it's so, so frustrating because the Germans in my life constantly like, are you afraid? You should be afraid. Are, you're not safe. No, no, I'm like, I'm fine. I'm safe. I am not going to be your victim. And I think that um, sorry, just like it's so the media imbalance is so frustrating. What are what are artists doing right now? What is this collective that we've been working with doing and why are they doing it? And so I would love to touch on Ira. I'd also love to touch on an alternative to Ira because maybe people don't realize that you, you know, we can oppose anti-Semitism and also be critical of the Israeli state. Most artists have decided that silence is the way to go. I've, I've 
read this quote a couple of weeks ago that is, you know, how do you engage as a good ally is be louder than the oppressor, quieter than the oppressed. And in, in Germany, it's not that hard because most people are just fucking silent. Um, anecdotally, I'm, I'm hearing from different sides that a lot of people are sort of in private. They're worried about the situation in Germany. They're worried about the ongoing and really... Uh, strengthening censorship, tightening censorship, and they're not in accordance with the German politics, the Israeli politics, and most are most are stuck in this extreme silence. But there are a couple um, really coming out, and I think we all saw that with um, this group that we're working with, that we're organizing the demo as of saying it now, tomorrow, as of you hearing it yesterday, which is against the adoption of the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism as a condition for cultural funding. And I'm just going to speak on that because uh, I actually spent a lot of time researching this, wrote an article about it. Um, it should be up by the time you're hearing this in Disorient, um, which is a great online paper with Swana Voices. And so the IHRA stands for International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, uh, it's like a state, international state alliance, just over 40 states, most of them European, but you also have the US, you have Argentina, uh, you have Israel. And they published this so-called working definition of anti-Semitism in 2016. It's quite short, quite vague, um, and is accompanied by uh, 11 examples of what this anti-Semitism can look like. And it's garnered just so much critique ever since it was incepted. And the critique is not really in the content of it, but is it is in its application. So as I said, it's very vague, which, you know, makes sense for the fact that it was something that a coalition of 40-something states had to agree on. Obviously, it's not going to be specific and actually critiquing those states. So it kind of did like a Sigmund Freud where in itself uh, it was really bad, but so many people got so angry about it that it actually produced a lot of good literature. Um, so there's the uh, Jerusalem Declaration of Antisemitism, which was published in 2021 by 210 scholars of Holocaust studies, Jewish studies, Middle East studies, Palestine studies. Um, there's the Nexus document. So there's there's different definitions of what antisemitism is. And the critique of the IHRA uh, working definition is in how it is used. And the fact that it is so vague lends itself to really being used as a shutdown of all critique of Israel. Um, so the way this could work is that, for instance... A colleague of mine, his brother was killed by the Israeli occupation in, in the occupied West Bank. And that was unjust. He should not have been killed. And just saying that and saying we should not be supporting a state that has been upholding a legal military and civil occupation for, what are we now? We're going into the 57th year we should not be supporting that. But to say that under the IHRA, working definition of anti-Semitism can be construed as anti-Semitic, which is nonsense. <laughs> and what the Berlin Cultural Senate did was make that acceptance of this working definition a prerequisite to receive state funding. And already for 
before before this was now officially adopted by the by the Senate, there has been I don't know if it was officially adopted already because it was announced on the 4th of January, but it showed up in applications already around Christmas time, just sort of popped up um, without it actually being announced. It was announced on the 4th of January. And that means you can't receive any state funding if you say or do anything that can be construed as critical of Israel, which is absurd. Um, So I can criticize my own state i can say you know fuck germany but but i can't say fuck israel that's nonsense and it's used as a tool of fear and censorship and self-censorship and we've been seeing this also ever since the bds resolution um and the european legal support center the lsc has compiled uh, a lot of Examples in which this IHRA working definition was used to silence um, pro-Palestinian advocacy and critiques of Israel. So that is the critique is that it's too vague and it gets used as a way to shut down criticism of Israel. And there's better definitions of anti-Semitism and also just the fact that you would include a specific definition of anti-Semitism. So again, we have the German government telling among other things, Jewish people, how they should define anti-Semitism, which is nonsense. And we don't have similar definitions for any other type of oppression. So you have to, you know, understand, understandably and correctly to, to get state funding, you have to move within the limitations of the Constitution. You can't get state funding for hate speech. Um well, at least you shouldn't be able to, but we know how much the Verfassungsschutz props up right-wing groups. So Verfassungsschutz, uh, Verfassung is the constitution, and it's basically a, a government body organization that uh, is meant to monitor extremism. And it very much focuses on so-called left-wing extremism, even though most of the sort of domestic terrorism um, and violence extreme violence, uh, hate violence we have in Germany comes from right wing. Also the anti-Semitic violence, but it's really used to monitor left wing extremism and funds and helps build up uh, right wing extremist groups like the the NSU, which is the National Socialist Underground, um, who killed 10 people over the course of 10 years, almost all of them um, immigrants. And uh, yeah, Germany is still... They haven't been transparent about the role of the Verfassungsschutz of the, like a literal translates to protection of the constitution of that group within these murders. So what is the the meeting at the Abgeordneten House that, um, that happened now yesterday and that protesters were there for? So the meeting uh, is from the Berlin Cultural Committee um, and they have the power to challenge this this decision by the cultural senator. And yeah, it's in the, the Berlin Abgeordnetenhaus. Yeah, uh, House of the Delegates, maybe. And there's a demo that the group we are, we're all in, is organizing against that. And there's several open letters. The biggest has been signed by over 3,000 artists already that say, hey, this is not the way to go. This will curtail uh, freedom of expression, freedom of art, because it also goes into other 
parts of artists' work. So if I, on my Instagram, post something about Palestinian liberation and then I apply for funding with a, a project that has nothing to do with that, they can take the funding from that project. And it very much applies guilty until proven innocent as opposed to the other way around. Play this out. Like, let's say, what does the next years look like? What do you imagine? I mean, I think it's quite obvious. We've seen several examples of how people's private speech is being used against them uh, and used to cancel or censor art projects already, like uh, what happened to Andu Plan, a Haitian artist, Haitian-American curator, who was planning a project in Essen. That project got pulled because of Instagram posts, not because of the content of the exhibition. Like, we're seeing people's personal political speech being monitored and used against funding who is being allowed to have a platform as an artist in this country. That goes far and beyond freedom of expression. And I think it's no coincidence that almost the entirety of the people who have been deplatformed are non-German, non-white. Yeah, it's just, an, it, it, it's a completely unthinkable state that we're in right now where the consequences of this are that the people who are going to be composing the visible culture in this city and in this country are people who have stayed silent on the war, the genocide, people who have no problem with it or who care more about their careers than about their values. That's an extremely cynical and repulsive form of hierarchizing culture according to the people who are risk-averse at best and fascists at worst. When I, like, when I tell my friends outside of Germany that this is going on, they, they're just like, that's unthinkable. Is that real? I cannot believe that that is actually happening, that they can do that. It's beyond the pale. And so I think collectively, uh, right now, we formed this group, Arts and Cultural Workers Alliance Berlin, we're working together because we insist that there be a voice for Palestinian culture, Palestinian artists, and other people who are being deplatformed right now. And we're trying to push back against these changes, and we're trying to amplify the fact that this is just fundamentally wrong from an arts perspective, not just from uh, a position of like being anti-racist. As artists, this is not how we are, how we work. This is fundamentally distrusting our ability to regulate our ethics and our ability to say what needs to be said. It's just wrong. And attempts like this to um, censor artists in the past have always been proven to be wrong. We're going to keep doing what we do. We're going to keep finding ways to say what needs to be said. It's not going to silence us. It's just going to create a double standard for culture and it's going to further hollow out the institutional structures that continue to comply. That's what it's going to do. It's just going to make Germany worse. It's not going to make us less good artists. Maybe poorer. Like the service industry will certainly be enriched by this. But like, honestly, that's, uh, it's not, it doesn't work. Because artists will be taking, going back to their so-called uh, day jobs or night jobs. Yeah, but also because like repressed artists are actually stronger artists. We're, it's only going to sharpen our critique. Ooh. Ooh, don't say that. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, 
I think that when you give artists like um, middle class life, art gets boring. I'm not like saying like defund artists. I'm just saying no, I'm like I'm, I'm also teasing you, but I think this is a really this is a really interesting conversation of, that I've had. You know, you can really like dig into that one. Like, does better art come from depression or from repression or you know these different kinds of things? And then yeah, these value questions about what is good and bad art are like obviously very nebulous. But I just think that like the institutional art that can continues within these funding structures. How how can that continue in a way that has any kind of anchor to reality, any kind of urgency, anything worthwhile to say when we know what it is not saying in order to get that platform has no credibility for me. I mean, do you think this could bring about possibly? I mean, if we because what I've noticed is like by speaking out more and more people are feeling a little better about speaking out. I mean, since like over the weekend, I would say there was more people feeling brave enough. Could this be not necessarily a tipping point, but could could it bring about a totally different change in our funding structure in the way that we think about the way that art is funded and what kind of art is produced from those mechanisms? That would be amazing. Like, I mean, if we could actually have a positive transformative effect on our funding structures, that would be great. I think at the very least, it is creating a lot of solidarity and a lot of networks of like, uh, we didn't even talk about organizing artists and how hard it is normally. But this repression is making us organize. It is making us form community and making us form structures of trust that we normally don't because the art system is so individualized and so focused around ego. And I think that this is bringing out people who need each other in a way that I haven't seen before in Berlin. And that's extremely heartening. Uh, So I think in a way, uh, not that the effects of this are good in any possible way, but the effects of this are are sort of like forging a strong backbone of resistance in the art community that I I really am amazed by and grateful for and brings me hope towards a future where we are likely going to see a right-wing government elected, which is a whole other level of fear. And I think we need these structures more than ever. So I think it is pushing us into coalescing in advance of what is coming. And I'm really, really impressed and empowered by what we're forming. So watch out. Mm. (laughs) You can't beat us, so join us. (laughs) I really do hope that it brings out a lot of people and it makes people politically organize um, because I also have talked with a lot of people who are kind of floundering. They don't really know where to start with the organization. And within, you know, let's throw around the big words, revolution or whatever, within within a movement, your space, your place is what you do best. And I was a friend of mine from Egypt was was telling me this a couple of days ago about the the so-called Arab Spring. And she said, you didn't have to tell people what to do. People people did what they were best at. So there were people in the streets cooking and, and, and giving out food and there was people making art and there was people organizing people and there was people making sure that um, people had, um, you know, a, an, a place to go after a protest or protecting people. And um, it reminds me of 
A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Zollnit, um, where she talks about the way these communities, very robust communities, form after catastrophe. And that is what we are what we are seeing now. And obviously, you know, the catastrophe of the art scene in Germany right now is nothing compared to the catastrophe that is being forced upon the Palestinian people. So these are two separate issues and both both of them are bad. One is very much more worse. And yeah, I hope artists can come over their ego and, and, and do what you do best. I do words. That's what I'm good at. And revolutions need words and other and, and revolution needs like each and every one of us. Um, there is no one way. It's not the writers will do the revolution. And it's also not the people doing civil disobedience will do the revolution. And it's not the journalists will do the revolution or the dancers or whatever. It needs it needs all of us. And I think art has a very powerful position in ridiculing power, in disturbing the peace, because too many people in Germany are at peace with their complicity. And we have to make them not that if we want that complicity and the murder and the genocide to end. Join us. Join us. It's not too late to speak up. If you have been silent so far, you can change that. And free Palestine. <laughs> you just heard from artist and activists Yara Nassar and Joshua Schwebel. Yara Nassar is a German, Lebanese, U.S. American writer, performer, and anthropologist interested in boundaries and blurring them. She writes poetry, plays, and prose in German and English interwoven with Levantine Arabic. Joshua Schwebel is a Canadian conceptual artist based in Montreal and Berlin. Working in conceptual art and institutional critique, Schwebel's artistic practice responds to sites and situations, looking at the neoliberal infrastructures that precondition the exhibition and valorization of art. You can learn more about them in the show notes. I'm Mad Kate, and you've been listening to Sweat, a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body in work. The theme music was composed by me and features the voice of performer and actress Lori Baldwin. Sweat airs every second Tuesday of the month at 13 hours Central European time on Collabor Radio, Free Radios Berlin, Brandenburg. Broadcasting on 88.4 FM in Berlin, 90.7 FM in Potsdam, and streaming online at fr-bb.org. Afterwards, it's available for streaming wherever you get your podcasts. Sweat is an unpaid labor of love. If you have the means to financially support the show, you'll find a link to my Patreon in the show notes. Your support is warmly appreciated. Thanks so much. Until next time. <laughs>